So we took a little vacation down to San Antonio, and on the way home, uh, my wife felt the need to kind of lean over and just kind of take a little nap. So somewhere along the way, as she was napping, she took the seat belt that was strapped in front of her and kind of pushed it back behind her head. And so when we got home, she forgot that the seat belt wasn't behind her. So when she unclipped the seat belt, uh, the slack taker upper thing that happens uh, starts to pull and she realizes like the seat belt is wrapped around her waist. And so it's kind of doing like the boa constrictor thing of just kind of getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Well, in our family, you can't spell drama without mama. And uh, she can be a little extra. And so she just uh, started just yelling like, 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 I'm stuck. I'm stuck. So I got out of the car, walk around to the passenger side. And by the time I opened up the passenger side door, sure enough, like she was stuck and the, the slack in the seat belt had taken up so much it had pulled her up off the seat so she's like dangling in the air like a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible kind of thing except in this case it wasn't comfortable and it's constricting like her air and so she's like I can't breathe so I run into the garage to find the jaws of life or something that I can kind of cut the seat belt and so while I'm in there doing that, she's pretty crafty, and she figured out a way to kind of wiggle out of that. But I'm, I'm telling you that story because I, this is the phrase that pays for today, and I want you to say this with me, stuck happens. Yeah, stuck happens. In your lifetime, you've had occasions where you've gotten stuck. Some of these pictures will remind you of some of those moments. Maybe you got stuck in the mud. Maybe you got gum stuck on your shoe. Or you found yourself stuck in a relationship or stuck in your career. I know, I know this one has happened to you. You've gotten stuck in a slow line before. You've gotten stuck in traffic. Maybe you were at a, at a group date and you got stuck with the ticket. Like, stuck happens. LinkedIn, you know that organization, it's kind of a career networking group. They published an article recently on a study that they conducted. Here's what they found out, 70%, 7-0, of the people surveyed said they felt stuck in their career. That meant they didn't feel they had an opportunity to advance. They didn't like what they were doing. They felt like they were too far deep down their career path to change seats now, stuck. Same survey found a higher percentage of people, 76%, said they felt like they were stuck in other ways in their personal lives. So they talked about feeling stuck in boring routines, trapped in relationships, stuck with a high mortgage, stuck with the same old friends, stuck with draining family, don't look around, stuck with draining family, stuck, stuck happens. Some research conducted by Harvard Business Review on the, on the whole idea of being stuck found this, that people who feel like they're stuck in their life, they have a lack of energy, they feel aimless, 
They experience diminished joy. On occasion, they report feeling intensely passionate. But when they feel that way, it's always provoked by jealousy. Because they're jealous of other people who look like they're living their best life now. While we're stuck with something less. They also report people describing the feeling of stuck as living in a fog trapped in survival mode, and feeling so sad that they've reached a point of depression. Now, people of faith, we actually can not only experience feeling stuck, but there can be an added intensity to the feeling because we feel a sense of guilt. Like, we shouldn't get stuck. We're people of faith. We believe through things. Like we persevere with the power of the Holy Spirit. Like we soldier on. Like there's something in us that that, that feels like we, we shouldn't get stuck. And yet we do. Why? Because stuck happens. Do you know there are people in the Bible who felt stuck? David felt stuck in the palace while his warrior buddies went to fight. Elijah felt stuck out in the wild. Life in Egypt. Paul felt stuck in house arrest, unable to continue his missionary journeys. Did you know even Jesus felt stuck? In the book of Mark, we read this protest about some of his disciples. Jesus said, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long do I have to be stuck with you? Stuck. See, even for Jesus, stuck happens. Now, there's no one in the Bible who perhaps has a better stuck story than one person found in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph. And so I want you to take your Bible and open with me. First book of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 37. And we're going to start to survey this week the life of a person who knows what it's like to get stuck. Now, Joseph is someone that has a, kind of has a better known story in the Bible. We, we know he's like a dreamer. And uh, some of you may know that he kind of has a falling out with his family. And uh, he gets shanghaied into a life of slavery and eventually is thrown into an Egyptian prison. But as he rises from the ashes, he becomes somebody important in the land of Egypt. So he's got a pretty interesting story. It stretches out over 13 chapters. We won't have the time to look at that because we're just going to do four weeks of this study. But what we're going to do, instead of just looking at every detail of his life, we're going to hover over four moments, four examples where his life gets stuck. So as we think about his life story, his lifeline, if you go all the way out kind of to the end of what we know, 
In week number four, we're going to look at a confrontation that he has with his brothers. And we're going to learn something about getting stuck with bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness. Because in Joseph's story, he encounters some pretty heavy trauma that's introduced by his brothers. And it's interesting, in life, time can move on, we can move on, and still be stuck with some pain from the past. And so we're going to see in Joseph's story how he dealt with being stuck with some of that bitterness. And then in week number three, we're going to see how Joseph settles into a life in Egypt. Now, this is a place he never thought he would be living life with people he never imagined being with. But this is where life ended up for him. And so we'll talk about sometimes in life we feel like we get stuck with a bad situation. And so you have to figure out how to move forward in healthy ways. Week number two, we're going to see how Joseph was sold into a life of slavery, how he did end up in prison, and how his story illustrates so many variations of setbacks and betrayals and moments of getting passed over and left behind. And we're going to see how it's possible for us to get stuck with disappointment. Now, today we're going to open his story and see probably the most famous part of it, which is he's given a dream. He, he, he finds a promise given to him by the Lord. Now, this is what we're going to find out. It's going to be many, many years between the time that a promise is given to him, a dream is given to him. It's going to be many, many years before that thing comes to pass. And so what we're going to learn from Joseph is this is getting stuck with a promise. Getting stuck with a promise. Having a hope that feels like it will never come to pass. Like living our life on a treadmill where you're taking steps, but you're not getting anywhere. The Bible has an interesting verse of scripture on this. It comes out of the book of Proverbs. Hope deferred, look at this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Like for a promise to just kind of keep being out in the future and like we never get to the promise being fulfilled. It can make the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled, a promise that comes to pass is a tree of life. So a promise fulfilled is life-giving, but a promise that is deferred is life-sucking. But guess what? Stuck happens even with promises. Do you know the Bible is full of promises? There's one resource that's called All the Promises of the Bible, and in it, it lists over 7,000 promises from God to us. They're precious promises. Like Romans 8.28. Like all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Is there a better promise than that? Like God can work everything together in our life for good. Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Isn't that a great promise? 
Or James 1, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you generously. In John 10, Jesus made the promise, I've come to give you life, and not just an average life, but an abundant life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord and he'll make your paths straight. God will guide you and God will lead you where you need to go. Philippians 4, 19, God will supply all your needs. Isn't that a good promise? He'll supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ. Or Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And in his old age, he will not depart from it. What a promise from God. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord bestows favor and honor. And there's not one good thing he will withhold from those who live right. Or Matthew 6, 33, seek God and his kingdom first, and then he will add everything else that's needed to your life. Or finally, Acts chapter 16 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. Now, those are precious promises from God. Maybe you've been holding on to one of those promises or one of the many others that are listed in God's word. Like you're holding on to the promise, but you feel stuck because you're living somewhere in between promise made and promise kept. Feel stuck. Well, maybe it's not one of those Bible verse promises, but maybe you have felt like a sense of revelation from the Lord. You hear people say sometimes, like, God told me. And there are some things that maybe God has revealed to you, and you've been holding on to those revelations, their promises to you. Or maybe you had a good parent or a supportive person in your life who spoke encouraging words to you, who gave you promises about your life, and you hold those and you treasure those. Promises that kind of fit like this, man, you, you can do anything. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. This is your year. You are anointed of the Lord. You are blessed and you are highly favored. Maybe someone has given you words of promise like that and you hold on to them, but you feel stuck in them. Like, when is that ever going to come to pass? I believe it. I treasure it. But I'm stuck. Stuck happens even with promises. Now, here's what we're going to have to learn today. We're going to have to learn how to hold and handle the promises of God. You've got to learn how to handle and hold the promises of God with humility. I want to say that again. You've got to learn to hold the promises of God with humility. That means that you make room in those promises for God to fulfill them, listen, in his way, on his timetable, and with his strength. If you try to manhandle a promise, if you try to make it come to pass your way, on your time, with your strength, it's not going to end well. So you've got to learn how to hold God's promises with humility. Let's dig into this. Look at verse 2 of Genesis 37. 
says this is the account of Jacob and his family. Now remember, Jacob is one of three patriarchs in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now what we know about Jacob's family from previous verses in Genesis is that he has four wives and 12 sons. We also learn in that family there's a lot of dysfunction. So there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of competitiveness, there's a lot of hurt feelings. That says when Joseph was 17, everybody say 17. Yeah, when he was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. Now, I've got four kids. They're all adult kids right now, but they're kind of separated in tandems. Like there was two older, two younger. There's only like two, three years in between them. But to hear my older kids tell it, like, oh, the younger two had completely different parents than we had. Anybody else hear something like that from your kids? Well, it's true that like when you start parenting, you don't know anything. It's amazing. They just hand you these kids and just go, here, go take them home, raise them. You don't know what you're doing. And so you learn a little bit as you go. So there is a sense in which, yeah, we got better at it, like the more we did it, but we weren't practicing favoritism like mentioned here. Look at this. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Now, in Broadway terms, this was his technicolor dream coat, right? But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. Here we go. He, he has a dream. There's a plan and a purpose and a promise for his life. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We're out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up. And your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think you're going to reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams. And look at this. And the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. This dude has no discernment. (laughs) Did you not pick up on the vibe the last time? You shared the dream and it didn't go well. But here he is again blabbing again. Listen, I had another dream. The sun, the moon, 11 stars bowed before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dream wondered what this promise meant. 
Now, after this sequence, like life goes on. And so in verse 12, we're told that the brothers are tasked by their father to take the sheep and pasture them in Shechem. Jacob later sends Joseph to go out and check on his brothers. But what Jacob doesn't know is the brothers have moved from Shechem to Dothan to another place. And so as Jacob goes out to find his brothers, the Bible says he, he arrived there in Shechem and a man. Now this is the word for a strange man, an unknown man, a rando. Just a, a random guy who shows up in the story. He notices Joseph wandering around. This is like, like walking in circles. What are you looking for, he asked. I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they are, pasturing their sheep? And he said, yes. And then this rando guy gives him directions on where Joseph can find his brothers. Now, we're going to pause the story here. But what we learn in the next few chapters is that Joseph's promise, his dream, listen, is put on pause. It is going to be a long, long time before Joseph sees his dream fulfilled. In fact, it's going to take 20-something years between when the promise was given to see his dream made real. So Joseph is stuck with a promise. Now let's ask ourselves this question. Why is it that sometimes like promises are put on pause? Why isn't it just promise made, boom, promise kept? Why is there sometimes a pause between when it's given and when it's fulfilled. Well, reading from Joseph's story, the first thing we can learn is that the people that are in our lives are sometimes responsible for our promise being put on pause. His family, man, was a hot mess. And they were in no condition to accept the possibilities of his promise. Like there was bitterness, there was jealousy, there was short-sightedness that kept them from encouraging the fulfillment of the dream. So his family's actions, they actually contribute to his promise being put on pause. Do you know this? Like if someone is drowning... And someone goes out to rescue that person who is drowning. If they don't know what they're doing, the person who is drowning can sink their rescuer. Out of panic, they'll put their hands on the rescuer and limit their capacity to rescue them from their drowning condition. People around us, sometimes people who are very close to us, can be the very people that put a hand on our promise and pause it. Sometimes even sink it. And so you have to know and understand that sometimes the people that are around us, they may not mean to, 
But their reactions, their attitudes, listen, even their sin can cause your promise to be put on pause. Here's another reason. Learn this from Joseph's story. Self-inflicted wounds, unforced errors can put a promise on pause. Now, let's be candid. Let's be honest. Like your first impression of Joseph isn't all that favorable. How old is he? 17. You should know better than be a tattletale at 17. I know a lot of 17-year-olds, and they seem to have more maturity and self-awareness than Joseph presents in the story. Like he, he flaunts his father's favoritism in front of his brothers. He struts around like a peacock wearing this robe. Now, I know the King James Version calls it a coat of many colors. Dolly Parton you know, wrote a song one time about a coat of many colors. The truth is, we're not sure that's what the Hebrew word means at all. It's a very ambiguous term. In fact, what we do know about it is, it does mean it's lengthy, covering the hands and feet. So a, a lengthy robe is like a robe that is a symbol of pride and position. This was not Carhartt gear. He was not giving his son a working coat. This was a supervisor's jacket. And we read the story, the impression of his method of supervision was kind of like a government supervisor who shows up at the dig and leans on his shovel while everybody else is digging. And so he's a tattler, he's a taunter, he's a, he's a babbler about his dream. So part of the reason Joseph's dream gets put on pause is because he isn't mature enough to handle the consequences of a promise fulfilled. Now, let me ask you this. It's a hard question. Is it possible that we share any of the blame for why we feel stuck with a promise? Is there any immaturity is there any lack of wisdom, lack of discretion that needs to be worked out of our life before the promise can be fulfilled? Here's the third reason for a promise getting put on pause in the story as we read it. And that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Sometimes, listen to me, the, the pacing of a promise has to do with God's plan and God's timing. Remember the appearance of this rando stranger? Somebody who doesn't know this person but just shows up and gives him direction of how he can find his brothers. Theologians tell us that the presence of this stranger is a signal from the scripture writer of God's hand in the activities as they are taking place. So God, listen, God is directing things as they occur. God is in control. He is sovereign and infinitely wise in the walking out of the fulfillment of a promise. Now, what nobody else knows 
because there's no weather channel back then, is that the circumstances are brewing in the Middle East for a drought and a devastating famine to go along with it. And it is such a devastating famine that it threatens the life of Jacob and his entire family. So you can see God is already sovereignly moving the the pieces, the chess pieces on the board to preserve Jacob's family. And listen, to guard the promise given to Abraham that he will have many descendants one of which will bless all the nations. Are you following me? That God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. In fact, one of your descendants will bless the whole earth. Who are we talking about? We talking Jesus. And so there is a sovereign protection and, and preserving of the life of Jacob and his entire family. So that means, listen, the pacing of a promise is always going to be filtered by the sovereign purposes of God. God knows his way, his time, and his ability to fulfill a promise in our life. So guys, we got to make a change. We got to make a change in how we approach promises. Instead of having this like immediate sense of gratification, oh, promise made, we got to have the promise kept. We have to change so that there is a humility in how we hold God's promises. Now, I know you may feel stuck. And so you're, you're stuck wondering, like, where is the favor of God that's been promised to me? Like, where is that sovereign hand that's working all things together for good? Because where I stand right now, that's not happening. Or, or where is God in making good on the promise? I raised my kids to love the Lord, and now my adult children have not returned back to the way of the Lord. Like, God, where are you on the promise? Like, I, I need more wisdom to live my life. I've asked you for wisdom, but I'm as dumb today as I was yesterday. I, I need the strength. I am tired. I need the strength that's promised from you. And there's, a, there's an expectation that we have, promise made, promise kept, but we got to learn to hold a promise with humility. James chapter 1 says this, in humility accept the word that God has planted in our hearts. Notice that in humility, accept the word. In hum that means it's possible for us to accept the word in a different way. But we have to accept it in humility. My roommate in college over a decade ago contracted Lyme's disease. I'd heard people talk about Lyme's disease. I'd never known anyone that suffered with it. We watched how that disease had devastating results in his body and on his mind. He was a pastor, had to step out of his ministry, couldn't pastor anymore. About five years ago, he, he passed away from complications 
relating to Lyme's disease. Left behind a wife, four children. We've watched her as she has held on to the promises of God with humility. Because listen, when you go through something like that, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Like, why did this happen? Where, where are you? When is this? There's so many unanswered questions and there's so many loose ends to the story. And yet we've watched her remarkably hold on to all of God's promises with this generous humility. In humility, receive the promises that God gives you and plants in your heart. Let me give you something fresh to consider about humility. You may think you know what it means, but here's something fresh to consider. Humility is knowing who I am and what I can do, but also knowing who God is and what he can do, and then not getting those things mixed up. That's humility. It's always remembering who God is and what he can do. I should never think of myself in ways that belong only to God. Like he is in control. He knows everything. He is independent. He has all ability. Neither should I ever think of God in ways that belong only to me. That I am limited, dependent, finite, uninformed. Would you say that right now, with regard to God's promises in your life, are you in a humility mode? Are you giving God the room to work out his promises, his way, his time, his strength? Two teenagers were given promises. Joseph, he's given this promise of a remarkable future where he's in an authoritative position and other people bow to him. How does he handle that promise? Well, he's pretty immature. He he just kind of babbles on and on about it. But there's a second teenager given a promise. Mary. I promise you, Mary, you're going to have a son, miraculous child. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. He'll save people from their sins. He'll be so authoritative that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. How does she handle her promise? The Bible says she pondered those things quietly in her heart. That means that there's a, a quiet humility, a deep faith humility in holding on to one of God's promises. And this is special, y'all. The Bible says in James that when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he'll not oppose us, but he'll support us and he'll help us. See, God's grace will work to make your promise 
a reality. But while we are waiting, we hold the promise with humility. We create the room to let God be God in our lives so that his timing in his way, in his strength can cause those promises to come to pass. Don't manage your promise on your own. Stand with me. Let's get a posture of prayer. Head bowed, eyes closed. Let's think about the promises that maybe we are holding on to and promises where we feel stuck. Maybe you're holding on to a promise regarding your career. Maybe you're holding on to a promise regarding your marriage. Maybe you're holding on to a promise regarding a child. You're holding on to some promises of God. God, when is this going to work together for good? God, when will I have the strength that I need? God, when will there be the wisdom that I need? You're holding on to some promises. Can I encourage you to hold them like Mary? Ponder them deeply in your heart. Have a quiet, humble confidence in God. Sister, God can. Brother, God will. But it'll be in his time. His way, His strength. So if you're stuck with a promise, will you get a new grip on it and hold it with humility? Father, I pray in Jesus' name.